All right. How's everybody doing? Yeah, I got some energy in the room, some shouts during worship. Jesus must really be here this morning, which is awesome. Um, I'm so kidding. For those of you that are here for the first time, you're like, gosh, he comes out, you know, he's kind of cynical and weird. Um, And I am. Um, just kidding. If you got your Bible, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 19. We have been in the book of Acts. We've drifted in and out of the book of Acts because it's a long one and we do series. We do um, our overall coverage of the Old Testament, our Come and Listen series, but we also dive into specific books in the Bible and we travel all the way through them. It took us a year to get through Romans. We're in the book of Acts and we'll move kind of in and out of it in eight-week chunks. And man, it's been an amazing one. I mean, has it not? Who's been here for a while while we've done the Acts study? It's been pretty amazing. Like just to dig in and see contextually the narrative that really launches us into the epistles that the Apostle Paul wrote. Because the Apostle Paul in this last, last half of Acts is on his missionary journey. Uh, and this in Acts chapter 19 is a crazy one. If, if we don't, we're not going to like dive into the entire chapter. We're going we're gonna to read scripture together today in a specific area. But it is a crazy one, like one of the like most interesting. It's one of those passages that elicits a lot of questions to the pastor because it brings up speaking in tongues. There's a lot of um, Holy Spirit power stuff that's happening in the book of Acts. There's like demon possessions. You know, guys get the pants beat off of them by a demon. I mean, there's some crazy stuff in this one you don't want to miss. So definitely this is one you're going to want to go back. We'll talk about it all. We'll be reading some scripture together, but you're going to want to go back and read a lot of this. And when I, I usually don't like have a series title until afterwards, and, and partly because, you know, the Holy Spirit does stuff and you kind of, ch- you know, sometimes things change throughout the morning and God, we allow God to kind of direct us in worship and direct us as we're teaching. Uh, but I felt like early on in the week I read this, I'd never really preached Acts 19 from this perspective or even really looked at other than the historical fact that it, it happened in scripture, the, the section, there's a riot in Acts chapter 19. Like it's a full on riot in Ephesus. Um, and I, I, I thought, man, we're going to dive into the riot. Like why in the world is there a riot? And the more that I dug into it, I kind of came up with this term called I- identity riot. You know how there's an identity crisis? They had an identity riot in Ephesus. And that kind of resounded with me as I was d- diving into this, this passage in scripture. And all of this, we kind of know what an identity crisis is. I mean, as, as adults, like, I mean, there's a bunch of technical, you know, if you look into the psychology journals, which you guys know I like to read, uh, there's some long definitions of what an identity crisis is. One of the shortest ones was this, an identity crisis, it, it, something that may occur in your adult years when you're faced with a challenge to your sense of self. So when something happens along the way that, that challenges who you are, because outside of the basic survival needs, we've talked about like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, this idea, you know, we don't live in a world where we're trying to figure out how do I get a roof over my head? How do I get my next meal? I mean, there's some people that are, but mostly in the West, we've, we've moved away from that lower portion of the pyramid and Maslow's hierarchy of needs to the area of self-actualization, to understanding who we are as human beings. Who am I? Where did I come from? How did I get here? Where am I going? I mean, the basic philosophical questions of life. And do I matter? You know, do I have, is there worth and value here? Can I leave a legacy? What is it about me? Where do I fit in in the culture that I live in? How do people think about me? What's my identity? Who am I? What do people say about me would be identity. And there's several things that shape that, right? There's some big things that shape our identity. Like there's building blocks, all of us in our identity, like what, who we think we are. They start when we're very young. Appearance is probably a, one of the bigger ones, unfortunately. Like it's the thing that we look at, like I'm either attractive or I think I'm unattractive. We look in the mirror a lot. Other people confirm or deny whether or not you, you know, how you look or we change, you know, we have fashion and clothes and things that we do that, that, we, that affect our appearance. And our appearance tells other people and communicates to, to us who we are, our family, the family you grew up in, it's, that's less evident here in the West. Family is a huge deal on the other side of the planet. Like that is a, identity is very shaped by your mother and your father and the family that you came from, your family name, how well you're performing in the family business, who you are, how you stack up. You know, we're all doctors in this family. Dad was a doctor, we're all doctors and here's the professions and here's how I stack up. Family has a big, it's a big brand that you wear on the other side of the planet. But 
Here, we're more in the achievement realm, right? In the West, you create your own identity based on what you do, what you can accomplish, how you stack up with other human beings. It's achievement. And then connection and relationship. It's who you know, what tribe you belong to, like who do you hang out with? I looked over here because it's all the students over here. I'm related, I just found this, I'm related to seven people over there. Like that's, I mean, you're like, is this West Virginia? I'm sorry if you're from West Virginia, but it's just, you know, we're all family here. Um, so that is a big deal. Like when you think about this idea of connection and relationship, tribal, we are tribal people. Like who, how do you, and it's also, how do I stack up in the group that I'm in? Like, where do I, where am I in that? Am I in the right zone? I mean, a lot of us like to slide ourselves into medium. Like, I don't want to be, you know, highlighted by anybody. And I don't want to be down here where everybody's going. I just, we all just kind of feel sorry for you. I don't know, you know, two more years of this. This has been a rough time for you. And we just, you know, not, you know, nobody wants to be pitied. You want to fit in. You want to be in that zone. You want to be that person. Like, I fit in in this particular area. Everyone knows how we build identity that way. Comparative comfort, where do I fit in? There's also negative things that we can spin positive in terms of our identity. Cancer survivor, I mean, that's a beautiful thing to be able to take something like I've survived a horrible thing in my life and I've got a whole tribe of people, a collective people. We got ribbons, we, we hang out together, we do runs together. You know, addicts, addicts definitely find their tribe and their world, people that relate to them and they get in that zone. Abuse survivors, all of those things. We can even take negative things and make them a massive building block in our identity. And then there's the smaller things that we add. You know, they're just kind of add-ons to the identity, like geography, where are you from? I mean, it's not one of those things that'll be devastating if you're not from a cool place. I mean, Duval's great. We all go, Duval. I mean, we, we, we get it. But that's not like being from New York. Like, let's be honest. I mean, if you're from Manhattan, you're just cool. I don't I mean, there's nothing you just like, you're somebody else. Like, I'm, I just grew up, I just grew up in the Bronx, grew up in Queens. Somebody says that, and you just talk to them. You're like, oh, what's that? What's up with that guy? He's from Queens. And I mean, it's just one of those things. Or Boston. They, they think that's the, the top. Like, they're from Boston. They really don't have to tell you anything else. Like, what do you do? Oh, I'm from Boston. I mean, I'm like, no, I asked you what you did. You know, doesn't really matter. I'm cool. You know, Patriots, you heard of them? Uh, I mean, that's just what, the way they operate. I mean, there's, and then there's, you know, your demographic, you know, we're defensive about it. It's weird. We're in a society where everybody gets offended by everything. I mean, like your demographic, right? Like, you know, Gen X, you know, we're obviously the best, but, um, you know, you look at the millennials, I'm kidding. So nobody even, in the first one, everybody's like, oh, Gen X, yeah, failures, we're cleaning up your mess. Um, but then you got millennial, like there's how many articles have been written about millennials, like the disaster, like this, you know, and I, millennials are finally going, we've done some pretty cool stuff. I mean, look around at the world. You know, Gen Xers will claim Apple, but really Apple got great in the millennial zone. Um, but, you know, that's, we, we claim those teams, schools that we went to. Those are little things that we brand. Identity, I'm just trying to get you in that, in that idea. Identity is a big deal for us. We build it. We spend a lot of our time. If we were in survival mode and everybody was trying to find something to eat, nobody would care what, you, what you're wearing. I mean, we would all be running around with spears and, and grass skirts. We wouldn't, we wouldn't care. We'd just be trying to survive. But that's, we're beyond that. And identity becomes a huge deal of survival. It is life and breath for us on planet Earth, especially in the West. And so today, what you're going to see, what we're going to wake up to is there's a deep connection between identity and idolatry. Because this story is about a city that, unlike in Acts chapter 17, there was a pantheon, there was 30,000 different idols, 30,000 different gods that the Apostle Paul comes into in Athens. Now that he's moved a little bit further around the horn in the Greco-Roman Empire. He's gone through uh, Corinthian, the Corinth last week with Dan, and now we're in Ephesus. There's one there's one God, there's one temple, Artemis, and it's a big deal. I mean, the idol worship is off the charts. These people, their whole identity for centuries has been all wrapped around this, this huge temple, this cultural religion that they had there, and it was who they were. But as you see this, you see there's this deep connection between identity and idolatry. I even thought about it, and I didn't say this in the first service, but when, when it comes to our identity and it, when it comes to and, and somebody trying to move us to somewhere that's a better place, these people thought this was everything to them. And the Apostle Paul comes in, the disciples come in, and they're, you know, they're trying to 
They're bringing Christianity into the mix. They're bringing a new way into the mix. And it's received well by some and not well by others. And so you're going to see the identity of these people being shaken. And you'll see exactly that it's all wrapped up in idolatry. But the relative connective tissue to us will become so obvious. So if you got your Bible, throw me to Acts chapter 19. Again, we come in out of Acts chapter 17, where the Apostle Paul comes in with just, he doesn't come in, you know, telling them your way is wrong because he knows that identity is driven by all of these things. And these people think this is salvation. Like they think this is, this is, this is where life is found. This is who we are. Don't mess with this. And in Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul knows that about the Athenians. So he doesn't come in busting in like Kool-Aid saying you're wrong and I'm right. He comes in with empathy. He actually uses their gods. He uses their poetry. He uses what they believe in to lead them to the ultimate God, to lead them to Jesus, to lead them to the power of the death, the burial and resurrection of Jesus. Not this religion, but this person that we were all meant to, that we were all born to, we were all created to have a relationship with. And it's beautiful. Lots of powerful conversions in Acts chapter 17. And then some that were like, we don't really want you around here. The Apostle Paul continues to travel again through Corinth, go around. If you look at the map, you can kind of see exactly where he ends up. Now he's in Ephesus. Ephesus is known as arguably more beautiful than Rome. This is how, I mean, the artistic beauty that was there, sports arenas that were there, the, the things that took, the, there was marketplace. This is metropolitan, cosmopolitan center. So the Apostle Paul, you kind of see the pattern of him going to Corinth and moving in through these metropolitan centers and saying, these are, this is where people are and this is where the, the, the news and the good news of Jesus needs to be. And that was Ephesus. You think about the, the temple of Artemis or Diana, that would be, might be more familiar to, to some of us who've studied Greco-Roman culture. Like in Rome, it was Diana, but Artemis was the, what, what, what you read in scripture. The temple there was four times the size of the Parthenon. If you study the Parthenon, the Parthenon is big. I just want to let you know. And it was that big. Their whole society in Ephesus was all around Diana or Artemis, this idol. That's kind of the way that they, they operated. And here comes the good news of the gospel. Here comes the good news about Jesus. And when the disciples and when Paul, they end up in Ephesus, they stay there for two years. And it's amazing. In the front end of this passage, you see amazing power poured out. I mean, there's a group of people that are there that had heard about Jesus, but they had been baptized back when John the Baptist was cruising around baptizing people, like setting things up. It says in John chapter one, that he was not the way, but he was what? Making a way. He was leading. He was making a path. He was blazing a trail because the, 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 the actual savior was coming and he would baptized people into repentance, preparing their heart for Jesus to come. So Paul meets all these guys and says, hey, do you know that you can be baptized like this? You've been baptized into John's baptism, this baptism of repentance, which is was something to prepare you for the Savior to come. Well, Jesus, and they knew of Jesus, but he was like, the Savior has come. His name is Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection. He preaches the gospel, restructures their whole thought process, prays for them, power of the Holy Spirit comes on them, and now they're baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues. Great powers poured out. People are getting healed. All kinds of crazy things are happening in Ephesus. Really amazing. And the Apostle Paul, they, they were moving in such power. Like God was doing so many crazy things. People were just in awe watching it go down. Like the Apostle Paul, they would, Paul would just touch napkins and handkerchiefs and aprons when the disciples were around. And they would just take things that he touched and they would take them out to people that were sick and they would get healed. I mean, that is crazy talk. I mean, that is amazing power that's being poured out. I mean, this is where you get the weird kooky ministries now in, you know, 2018 to 2021 or, you know, that's, people have always done it, but like where all of a sudden you watch a, you know, channel 13 is what the channel it used to be on. There'd be some televangelists with jet black hair holding a hanky that you could buy for 1999 that was blessed by somebody. That's where we take something beautiful that God did powerfully in the Bible and it, we twist it and try to make money on it. Um, and what's interesting about that is even in this passage, all this power is being poured out and there was people watching, observing. And all they cared about was 
where's all this power coming from? Can we have this power? We see the apostle Paul drop in the name of Jesus all the time. Maybe we can do that. So there was a Jewish priest and there was the seven sons of Sceva, this whole crew that they weren't interested in having a relationship with Jesus. They were like, no, we don't care, don't love Jesus. That wasn't their deal. They were like, we wanna see what we can get from Jesus. And power was what they wanted. So they start cruising around. And I love this passage. It's funny, you gotta go back and read it because they, they, they're like, okay, look, we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna pray for healing. We're gonna walk around. And they would pray for people and they would say, you know, we, we pray for you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul talks about. That's how that was their powerful prayer. And so they try this business with a guy that was really demon-possessed. And I always think of like a crazy, this would be an amazing movie, just Seven Sons of Sceva. You'd watch it. It'd be coming out around Halloween. It'd be really weird. And so he goes into, they, these guys go in this house. This real story, this stuff happened. They go in this house to pray for this guy to cast out a demon because they think they've got the, you know, the, the power. And they, they, they pray for him in the name of Jesus, whom the apostle Paul claims. Come out of this man. And I, I, don't, I don't know, I always, in my mind, I'm like thinking, how did this go? This must have been the freakiest thing. Demon possessed. I mean, I don't know if his head spun around or what he did at that point, but he turns to them when they're laying their hands on him and just, and says, I've heard of Jesus. No, he says, I know Jesus. I've heard of the apostle Paul, but who are you? I mean, that would freak me out. I mean, they were like, uh, uh-oh. And you know what happens next? I mean, this is, you've got to read the Bible. It's so crazy. The, the guy, okay, think about it. Seven sons of Sceva and one Jewish priest. They, the one guy beats them all furiously. Like just beats them to, it says it beats them to a bloody pulp and they run out of the house naked. He literally beat the pants off of them. I mean, that is the craziest thing that you, I mean, that is like on a guy level, that is like, it's already humiliating physically that you're walking out there with bruises, but now you got no pants on. I mean, that's an emotional scar that you'll never get over as a guy. But it, it, that whole passage just blows up with just unbelievable stuff. And in the middle of it, all of these things, all this power is being poured out. And immediately, okay, all these people in Ephesus, a large group of them just said, hey, whatever we believe in, it has no power. These trinkets, all of this stuff, this Artemis, Diana, we are done with all the sorcery, the mystic stuff. We are gonna burn all of that stuff because we have a reverence for the name of Jesus. After watching the, the demon possession stuff, after watching what's happening with the apostle Paul, they're like, this Jesus is real. And they gave their lives to Jesus and they set aside everything else. It, it turned things, it disrupted that town. I mean, in a huge, massive way. And that's where we find ourselves in this passage in scripture. This is, it's right in your Bible. If you've got the NIV, it says riot in Ephesus. I mean, I was, there was no way I wasn't going to cover a riot. All right, Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 23, it says about that time. And again, the apostle Paul was there for two years with the disciples. So this is a, a lot of time has been happening and a lot of tension has been building. About that time, there rose a great disturbance about the way. Now remember, the way is what we know today as Christianity. This was the movement of Jesus. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. So this is a guy, he kind of leads all the, the trades, the business leader, the, you know, writes for the business journal. He's the guy that's making the, you know, the necklaces that everybody's wearing around town. He's making the shrines in people's houses. And he brings all the craftsmen together and says, boys, we got to talk. He called them together and along with the workers in the related trades and said, hey, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from the business that we do. They're like, hey, for centuries we've been here and... Artemis, the temples, all of this stuff, our whole culture is wrapped around this and we have cashed in on this whole deal. He says in 26, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray a large number of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Now, this is the offense that they're like, hey, what do we do with our lives? Like, what is our, what is our, profession and our identity. Guess what we do? We make little gods with our hands. And here comes Paul saying, hey, if you make little gods with your hands in, in people's houses, that's probably not a God worth worshiping, which is a pretty good point, right? But they're like, this is not good for business. They go, it goes on to say, it says, 
This is spreading everywhere. There is danger not only to our trade and will lose its good name, reputation, identity. It's all kind of built in here in the passage. We're going to lose what makes us us, not only loads of cash, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. Saying everything that makes us who we are as people is being taken. It's being ripped from us by this guy Paul and all of his, his people. It's changing our community. Now, from our perspective as Christians, we're like, this is a beautiful thing. There's a revival that's happening. But people don't always receive it that way. Because identity and idolatry, there is, there is a link there that we're going to unpack here. In verse 28, it says, when they all heard this, all these businessmen, all these people, that their whole life, their identity, their livelihood was all in this town and in this temple and in this religion. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. So something bad's getting ready to happen. They're like, let's grab a couple of his people and we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna have a discussion. Somebody might die, it's gonna be bad. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples that were around, they're like, bro, slow your roll. You might not wanna go in there. Like they're just saying, hey, this crowd's pretty crazy. And Paul's like, let me in there, I'll tell them what's up. And even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. They were already in there and they're like, send a message out to Paul saying, you do not want to come in here. People have gotten a little, there is a riot going on in this place. Now, as this passage, you go read and continue how the passage goes down. They end up not killing Paul. They don't kill the disciples. And a guy that's, you know, works in the pro-council settles everything down. But I am, I'm very wanting to know just what God has to say to us, but also what was, what was happening? Why the riot? And I think we're already kind of feeling it as we talked about identity in the beginning. What made these people so upset? The gospel is amazing news. Like the, the gospel isn't news that's bad news. It's good news. This idea that, that we no longer have to be, be, be captured and enraptured by what people think about us, but we're eternally approved of by the king of the universe that we actually can serve a God that is alive, that we can have confidence, not wandering out, wondering, where did I come from? Why am I here and where am I going? The answers to the biggest philosophical questions in life answered in the person of Jesus, who they're coming around going, we've got proof. He was resurrected from the dead. He died, poured out his blood on Calvary, and he's now alive. I mean, this was good news. Why are people upset? Well, my first point here is very obvious. Sometimes the gospel causes a riot. Sometimes the gospel causes a riot. It opposes false saviors. It leads people away from sin and death and into life. But just because something is a false savior doesn't mean that people still don't believe it's their savior. And when you tread on somebody else's savior, when you tread on somebody else's identity, when you tread on somebody else's idolatry, there might be a little riot that happens. It's interesting when you think about the life of Jesus, it worked the same way. Jesus, savior of the world. You know, God with flesh on comes to planet earth. And Jesus did amazing things. When you talk to even non-Christians about the works of Jesus, like what Jesus did, people are like, man, Jesus was cool. I like, I like who Jesus was. I like how he was compassionate. I like how he reached out to the least, the last, and the lost, to the people in the margins, to the poor, to the widow, to the orphan. You know, I don't know why anybody wouldn't like Jesus. But in Jesus' day, they called him a revolutionary. In Jesus' day, people were mad. Certainly, some people were really excited because they were like, we had no shot with God. We were outside of the temple system. We were unholy. We were sinners. We were prostitutes. We were tax collectors. And now Jesus comes on the scene and he's like, sinners and repentance, this whole thing, this is, this is possible for me. I've never been able to be a part of any of this. It was good news to them. But to the people who had built their identity on the law, the Pharisees, to them, their whole livelihood, their life was built on something different, was built on their own built righteousness the identity and the building blocks of righteousness and identity that they had built 
for themselves in the religious system. And here comes Jesus to upend all of that. So what do they want to do? They were just nice and said, you know what, Jesus, we've been waiting for you. Come on through. We're so excited that you're here. No, they tried to murder him. They wanted to kill him. You end up with a riotous crowd screaming, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Why? Because Jesus upended what they thought was salvation. He upended their way of life. He upended what was holding them up. He upended what they thought was their foundation. It flew in the face of what they thought was their savior. They came along and said, we've got it all figured out. And Jesus said, no, you're a whitewashed tomb. On the outside, you're trying to make it look like you've got it all together, but inside there's death that needs to be resurrected. And they didn't like that. The Roman society at the time, they didn't like it either. It was disrupting their way of life. Crucify him, crucify him. Jesus, the gospel causes a riot especially when we, when we think about where we are in our culture in the West right now. Expressive individualism, we talked about that. That is the, the culture that we live in. We don't build our identity on family. I mean, we do. I mean, I'm proud to be a Harmon, but that's not, it's just not how we roll here. I mean, I tell my kids, you're a Harmon, you should be proud. But that's not a big deal. I, they're like, yeah, dad, super. You know, they don't go to school going, I don't know if y'all know this, but I'm a Harmon, woo! I mean, that's just not what we do. For us, it's about success. It's about what we've accomplished. It's about what we can build for, for ourselves from here on out. How can I leave a legacy? How, can, how do I stack up in the world that I live in? It is comparative analysis, you know, all over the place. I mean, it starts at a very young age. That's how we operate. And we, we attach to our tribes. Like we find our people. We heal our brokenness along the way. You know, it's interesting. I was just in Savannah last weekend and Savannah's Southern city, but very progressive. You know, you got the famous school of art and design that's there. Um, and you, know, you cruise around. It's very kind of a juxtaposition of strangeness because you've got all these Southern statues, but you've also got the very progressive culture, the art culture that's there. And the people that are there and walking around, they're just way cooler than me. Like I was watching this guy who was walking out of this super cool coffee shop that I couldn't even order coffee from because I'm just not cool. And he walks out and he's got jorts on and he's making them cool. I don't even know how you make jorts cool, but he was so hipster. I don't know what kind of shoes he had on, but I was like, I could, I could never even pull that off. And he's cruising, he's reading a book. He's got his Warby Parkers on. He's got, you know, a flannel that I'm just like, I don't even know where you would get a flannel like that, but it's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And he's just cruising along, you know, doing his day. And I'm 95% sure he's, at SCAD, School of Art and Design, or, he, or he's graduated from there and he's made a life in this place. Now, here's how weird and freaky I am. Um, you're like, I hope you didn't go talk to him about all this. I'm like, no, I didn't say anything to him. But in my mind, I started going, I started building the hypothetical of his life. And like, how did he end up here? What, you know, who is he? What is he connected to? You could make some very quick and probably correct assumptions about some of it. But then I went backwards and started to build his entire life. I said, I wonder how he grew up. Maybe, just maybe he grew up in a household where he wasn't, you know, the art thing was not popular with his mom and dad. Like they weren't really proud that he was, he was a little bit reclusive. He didn't play soccer, didn't play football, didn't play baseball. He was kind of to himself. You know, he did weird things. The only friend he had was another weird kid that played Dungeons and Dragons. Or, you know, I don't know. I just started thinking through all of it. Like, who is this? And, and I just got this picture of isolated from his parents, isolated from his school and his friends. He didn't have anybody that really liked him, didn't have anybody that he was connected to and didn't have any crew, didn't have a tribe. And he was very broken wondered who he was and if anybody would ever love him, anybody would ever accept him, if he would ever be chosen, if he would ever belong somewhere. And then all of a sudden, somewhere along the way, maybe it was a senior year in high school, maybe it was somewhere, you know, as he was entering into college, he found that he was good at art. He was good at some of these things. He connected with people in the progressive culture. He connected with people in this particular, particular ideology. He gets to Savannah, he goes to SCAD. Now he's got a tribe. Now he's got people. And now I'm seeing him Fast forward many years later, and he's got a swagger because he's got people. He's accepted. He is loved. He has got an identity that he never had before. He's received healing. 
He's received wholeness from this new tribe, from this new community, from this new identity of being an art student or an art graduate student or an actual artist that teaches other art students. I don't know, but he is a new human being. He's been reborn, he thinks, into a new world. And all of that is being held. And we know at shifting sand, it can go away in an instant, but for him, it's the most solid foundation he's ever felt in his life. Now, again, my brain's weird. I'm like, okay, now insert Christianity into his world and say, you need to give that all up and you need to be a Christian. How well is that gonna be received in the progressive culture world that he has received healing from? There's gonna be a riot. I mean, if there was a, an evangelistic move in Savannah, you know, that moved around Broughton Street and around SCAD and any of those areas right now, there would be a riot. There would be flags. There would be all kinds of stuff. There would be violence. There would be statues that would come down. And the reason would be is there would, there would because the gospel flies in the face of false saviors, as good as they might be, when you make them ultimate, they will eventually betray you. But when you're in the zone of not yet, we don't want anybody stomping on that. And we live in a society where that's happening everywhere. That is why we have the culture that we have. People have received some amazing things. They've received a tribe. They've received people. They've received a lot of things that they've gotten from the culture that we live in, this individualistic culture where they get to express themselves. And all of a sudden, the gospel comes with better news. But it's just like, I had this, this mental picture. I didn't even say this in the first service. It's like, you ever seen those movies where you got the dads over on, like something terrible's happened. There's been an earthquake or something's happening. You got the, the mom and the daughter on one side of the, the crevasse and dad's on the other side and mom's over here and the daughter's like, I will not jump. I don't care whatever you say. I know dad's over there, but this is the better place for me to be. But mom and dad both know this is death and it will soon pass away. This ledge will fall into the ocean and both of us are going to die. We need to go over to, I'm going to throw you over to, and what, with everything that she has, the daughter's like, no! That's the world that we live in. Salvation is in Jesus and in Christ alone. But that message in the lens of the world that we're sitting in is, don't take me away from the place that has been salvation for me, has told me that I belong, that I have a tribe, that I have people. Everything that you believe in flies in the face of everything I've built my identity in, my sexuality, my race, my world, my politics, my ideology. And you're telling me, Jesus, only Jesus. Well, we're gonna riot over that one. That's the world that we live in. Because identity is so connected to idolatry. And we believe things are our savior. And man, things do swoop in like Superman and save our souls. Relationships do it. I mean, they, they can come in and be, be our saviors. So number one, the gospel, the gospel can cause a riot. Secondly, and this one gets, hits a little closer to home. Sometimes us, because I think that gets us in that, because I have a lot of heads nod in that part, because I think we, as Christians, a lot of us are in the culture. We're like, yeah, we live in the cancel culture. We know, Derek. We know that we're, everybody's being shut down because we, uh, what we believe is a collective, not expressive individualist, believing we don't save ourselves, but our hearts and our lives are bending upwards towards a savior. Our tribe is different. We know that we are offensive. But the reality is that that puts us in an us and them type positioning, right? Which is actually so untrue. We often view that as the church. We, all, we, we really need to come into the framework of our culture understanding we are all sinners in need of a savior. Everybody in here, everybody out there, everybody in every art school, everybody in every church, everybody in every town, we are all in the same position. We are not a elite city on a hill. That is not the, the, the city on the hill that Jesus talks about in scripture, but it's the one often that we believe that we're in, in the church. We figured it out and they haven't. 
What's true about us is we have the same problem with idolatry. Not only does the gospel cause a riot out there, it causes a riot internally with you and me. And that's why I say sometimes we claim one savior, I love Jesus, while clinging to another. We do it in big things and small things. It is the essential. When we talk about sin, most people think about, you know, gratuitous sin. Like he's got a problem, a sexual problem, or he's got, he drinks too much, or, you know, this is, you know, I saw him smoking a cigarette. We just think we have a weird high-level view of sin because some of us grew up in a church where that was kind of the thing. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, you know, stay this far apart. Make sure there's a Holy Spirit is between the two of you when you dance because that's the only way, you know, if you're sitting there and you're watching a movie, no blanket and a Bible right here. I mean, that's some of you grew up that way. You can tell I've got some brokenness that still exists from the way that I grew up. But you've got, you've got all of that and then all of a sudden you realize we claim one Savior, but we cling to another and sometimes it's hard to see that. But for us, we all have things that we build our identity on. We have our own Artemis. Artemis was known as the protector of the city. We have things that protect our city. We say, we sing Jesus, only Jesus, I love Jesus. You know, he's, he's my everything. Is he really? I mean, what is it that, would, that could be pulled out from under you? And if it is, would cause you to react emotionally? Because anger is a great indicator of idolatry. And of course, somebody in here go, I, there's, I have justified anger. That's my anger is always justified. Well, that, I, you're lying. I'm just saying, most of the time, there is times for justified anger. Most of the time when we're angry, when we have an internal or external riot, it's because somebody has stomped on our idol or our identity the thing that makes us us, the thing that, that we believe keeps us in the right position with other people. I don't want to be down here in the way people view me. I want to be at least up here. It'd be great if I was up here looking down at everybody else. That'd be fantastic. And we get pegged down, all of a sudden anger comes to the table. And it happens, it's when in, something gets threatened. You know, we, we, we build identity on skills, don't we? I mean, guys do. I mean, girls do too. And when those things, that's when we get weird. You know, I was just thinking about, you know, Mike Berry is such a good guitar player. I see his red guitar and I just, I, th I think he is skilled, you know, he's full on back to the future. I'm ready for him to just kick over an amp and do something awesome with it, you know. But when you're good at something like that, there's always somebody else in the mix. There's always, there's always this competitive edge in which we build identity on. And it's interesting if you read about, I, I, I watch a lot of documentaries or watch, watch you know, ESPN, 30 for 30s. Those are amazing. But a lot of those, the, the sad ones where Tom Rinaldi is making you cry are usually about somebody that they pinned their hope. They pinned all of their identity. They, they pinned their world on their skill, on playing football or playing soccer or playing some sport. And that was their life. And then all of a sudden, tragic injury, something happened, a downturn of whatever, and their life is absolutely obliterated because their foundation, their identity is now gone. I was this. Their claim was, this was me, and now it's no longer me. You see, the gospel says you're so much more than the sport you play or the skill that you have. You're a child of God. Being human means you're an image bearer of God himself. But we take things like playing a guitar well, success, and we put it in that position of our identity. We put it in that position of, you know, this is what makes me me. I mean, you get to be my age and you start to do that with your kids. What do your kids do, you know? And you can't help it because people roll in. That's, you know, it, you know when, you're, when you have kids, it's like people roll in and that's the question. It's like, I need something to talk about. What do your kids do? My kids play soccer. My kids play baseball. My kids play football. You know, my kids do this, do that. And you're like, chess club, you know, they're good at chess. Um, you know, you, you come in and just, you don't know. You're just like, and all of a sudden it has a bearing on how you feel about you. And then your, your, your kids become the badge of who you are, what college they go to, how well they're doing in school, how well they're doing in life. And we, our day is held captive on whether or not they're succeeding or not, not because of our love for them, 
but because it reflects on us, identity and idolatry. It's our Artemis. It's the protective of our city. When our kids are doing great, they're on the elite squad of whatever team and they're doing their thing and they're making this stuff, which is awesome. But when that becomes the pinnacle, when that becomes it, then you've put it in that fragile place of it is going to destroy you when it comes crashing down. And it's a weight that your children were never meant to carry your identity. It's tragic, but it happens. I mean, we live in a surf culture, you know? Does your kid surf? My kid surfs, it's great. He's going, he's going to the thing, he's in the ESA, whatever, and you're like, chess club. I mean, you, just, you, don't, you don't, I mean, we do it, you know? And it becomes a part of our idolatry and our identity. We don't even recognize it. We don't even see it, but it is our Artemis. It's the, it's the temple, it's the... It's the protector of our city. Our relationships, our marriages sometimes be, are, are that. It's the temple. I mean, Dave's description was so good because a lot of us, we, that's what we're looking for. You hear somebody say that, especially on Valentine's Day, and you've got people that are walking through abandoned, well, some that have never had a relationship. I, I didn't say this in the first verse, but I was thinking about the shifting sand of romance. Like, we make that a God. We're like, if I could just have this person, we've all been there. Like, if I could just have her, everything will be fine. You know, we've been in that place. But who in here, I'll just ask, has ever been through a breakup? Just raise your hand, be honest. I mean, that's way more than half. The rest of you are like, I have to actually be in a relationship first to be broken up with. <laughs> that should tell you. It is not a foundation we would ever put our hope in. And on the non-humorous side, there's people that, I mean, the, the divorce rate in our city alone is in the high 60 percentile. And it is supposed to be. God intended it. This one flesh that should not be put asunder to be together forever is the goal. But it is absolutely not our foundation. We, would, we are not supposed to put the weight of our identity in our spouse as our everything. As Dave said, to redirect our heart thankfulness for our spouse and for the relationship that would allow our heart to roll up to see the creator, to see Jesus, to see the cross and understand who he is and say, thank you for the grace he's extended to me. But know that the firm foundation is Jesus and only Jesus. I mean, sometimes busyness is our idol. I feel like that's our culture too. Like being busy. Everybody says they're busy. You ask anybody, how you doing, man? I'm just busy, man. You know? I mean, some people are fine not being busy. I mean, there's a whole crew I know that's like, you know, you can take stuff off my, but some people are protective of their plate. Like, I don't want you to take stuff off my plate. You ever met any like, just, uh, you know, I can take some things off. You seem like you're stressed. And oh, I got all this, man. It's like a warm blanket, stuff to do. Like, you know, I just cover myself in stuff. So I don't have to do stuff. Like people call you and like, hey, what are you going to do Thursday? What are you going to do lunch? I'm so busy, man. I'm so busy. Just because you don't want to meet with them. You're busy though. And it's your thing. It's your warm blanket. It becomes our foundation. You take that away, then all of a sudden you feel like you're nobody. I mean, it is, it is who we are. And you get into the deep-seated stuff, the, the sexual identity, the racial identity, and the political identity. I mean, it is a big deal. Yeah, uh, political identity. I don't think anybody gets really mad about politics, so we can just skip that one. Um, <laughs> I mean, you do. It's like people are like, yeah, I'm not very political, but then people are exploding in our culture right now, like losing their mind over something that is so not a firm foundation. So not going to be the thing that's going to, I mean, 10 years from now, 20 years from, I mean, are you, was anybody going to think, I mean, there'll be, there'll be Saturday Night Live sketches about 2020 and 2021 forever. There's going to be a time when we do laugh about it. Right now, people are still, I mean, people are still mad. I mean, it's tiptoeing. People won't even watch SNL because they're still, you know, they're really mad, but it's not where we would keep that. We have our own internal riots. And man, I'm telling you, it just, it, it confirms for me that when you become a believer, when you follow Jesus, it's not this instantaneous thing where all of a sudden I'm all good. It is a war that we wage here on planet earth with the gravity of this world, submitting my life every minute, every hour, releasing the thing in my hand that I thought saved me because I will go back to things and think it is the firm foundation for me. If I lost this, then I would feel like I was gonna die. 
if I lost this clout, if I lost this respect, if I lost this dignity, or I have lost it and I'm doing everything I can to claw back and get it, or I'm creating collateral damage in my life because I feel like a failure and the only way I will feel successful or feel like I'm somebody is if I get these things and they've been out of reach. The gospel is such good news. I mean, the gospel does cause a riot. And inside and outside of the church, we claim one savior while being beholden to another. But thirdly, and this is the the good news right here, we always have more in Christ than we can build for ourselves elsewhere. We always have more in Christ than we can build for ourselves elsewhere. You know what's amazing about Acts chapter 19? I love this series because it connects to things that if you're church people, you've read your whole life. But you see in Acts chapter 19, this whole passage, this this restructuring of a city and their identity in their God and their idol. And in the same time period, the apostle Paul within five years writes a letter to the church at Ephesus. And that's Ephesians. It's the epistle that we have and that we love. We talk about it so much in here. You know, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. This is not a, you know, God comes to make you a little better because you're a little bit naughty. No, you were dead in sin. That's Ephesians. Your identity, everything that we read in Ephesians 1, if you look at this, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the church at Ephesus and speaking to these people, telling them the good news of why this is so amazing that their identity has changed. It's the, it's the born again idea. Like we, we've kind of dropped that language in our, in our society. Like the, I mean, you, I grew up in the, you know, are you born again, brother? I'm born again. It's great. I don't know why I'm Southern. That has to be a Southern thing. But there is something powerful. It's a biblical, you know, Jesus in this conversation with Nicodemus. Born again is all about what? It's all about your identity. Who are you? Jesus explains to Nicodemus, and this is the resounding language that finds its way into the epistles, into Ephesus. You're no longer this person. You're made new. And I'm telling you, it's not building your identity. It's not taking these broken pieces that might not be there tomorrow, this fragile sand that you've made who you are. It's being reborn into the the solid foundation of your identity in which Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. That's right out of Ephesus. Ephesians 1, I love this. It says, praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And this blows my mind because this is to a church at Ephesus. These people believed, it's believed that there was a meteor that came down in Ephesus hundreds of years before. And they were like, this is Diana. This is Artemis. We're gonna take this meteor and we're gonna put it in the temple. And it became this huge deal. Like that was the, the closest to real they had when it came to their God. Is this heavenly experience of this meteor coming down into the center of their city. And they're putting this meteor in their temple. And here's the apostle Paul saying, no, the meteor that came to earth is Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. And listen to this. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Everybody in here wants to be chosen. You want to, pick, you want to be picked. You want to belong. We, want, we are tribal. God's made us that way. Some of you have had words spoken over you. Some of you have been left on the outside. Some of you resonated with my, the guy I made up in Savannah. You never belonged to anything. And here you've got this amazing family that you're being born into by the blood of Christ, that you're now chosen in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. You are part of a family. You are a son or a daughter in accordance with his pleasure and will. He wanted to do it. He did it in love, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace. He's freely done it. He's given us, given it all to us in in the one he loves, in Jesus. He wants us. He's not doing it because he's fed up with us. I guess we got to send Jesus down there to take care of business. God sent himself. It's the beauty of the Trinity. 
sent himself to give away himself, to bleed out on a cross because he loves you. And you were always meant to be with him to the praise of his glorious grace. He's like, this is connected to my glory, but I love you. It's for my glory and your good. How cool is that? Every word that's been spoken over you, every word from a father or a mother that tells you you're not good enough, that you don't stack up, that you're not valuable, that you don't count, that person that's left you abandoned, that relationship that maybe you had for 10 or 15 years where somebody's walked away from you, what that said to you, the enemy, the committee that's speaking to you in your head, telling you you're not valuable. There's a better word. There's a, there's a word right here that says you are, you are loved, you are included. You continue in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2, it says you were dead and now you're alive. You were outside, now you're inside. You were excluded before, now you're included. You were alone, now you got a family. It's not based on appearance, performance. It's not a created identity, nothing you could create for yourself. It was an identity that was purchased for you and given to you in blood on a cross. How amazing is that news? And it changes everything about who we are. It changes every room you walk into. It changes every conversation that we have. Just like Aaron said, we should be the people that aren't offended because nobody can take this from us. People are offended when you've robbed somebody of something. You can't take what Jesus has given me. I didn't pay for it. You didn't pay for it. You don't have it. He was the only one that did. And he willingly gave all of it up on the cross that I might be reconnected with him forever. Son of a king. That's what we want right there. That is the news. That is the news that we cling to, that changes everything. So it's not this, how do I figure out how not to be such an idolater? How do I figure it out? I don't know how to give up my Artemis. I've got so many of them. The same grace that saved you is the same grace that sustains you. All, it's surrender. In, in, in the world, it's like we work harder. In the gospel, we surrender. We just open our hands and we say, I'm, I'm not enslaved to this anymore. I get to lay all of this down come what may at the feet of Jesus. My relationships, things that I love, they will no longer be ultimate. Jesus decides what happens to them. My identity is no longer in my sexuality, my race, my religion, or my politics. My identity is in Christ. I'm gonna just put those at his feet. That's not working. That's giving up, putting it at his feet. To win in the kingdom of God is to surrender. Go figure a beautiful, you couldn't make it up. Only God could do this for us. Let's stand. God, we love you. God, lead us to this place in every portion of our life where we know and we understand who you are. We have a clarity when it comes to your love for us, more and more revealing the mystery of your love for us.